Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The following story contains material that may be offensive and emotionally disturbing, and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. This is An Eye for a Killing, the true story of Scotland's most notorious serial killers, Burke and Hare. Episode 3, The Innocent and the Guilty. In his prison cell in Edinburgh sits the mass murderer William Burke. He's chained to a table. Across from him is Thomas Galbraith, a reporter from the current newspaper. In a slaughtering spree lasting ten months in 1828, Burke and his fellow mass murderer William Hare have killed 16 people and sold their bodies to the anatomist Dr Robert Knox. Now, in an extraordinary confession, Burke is keen to get things off his chest. You want me to list them? I do. They get mashed up in my head. There were so many. I'm waiting. I don't remember them all so clear. I might forget one. Just try. The pensioner Donald, we didn't kill him, but sold his body because he owed hair rent. The man who was dying, the miller, smothered and sold. Lodgers with the hairs. Effie, the woman from Gilmerton, who came to Hare's lodging house. An old woman, an Englishman. The woman, Hildane. Cinder woman, she got drunken hair, suffocated her. <laughs> there was a woman and her grandson, I think. The boy was soft in the head. <laughs> Mary Patterson. A washerwoman who'd been washing in Hare's house. A woman called McDougal. She got drunk. Did her, sold her. Daft Jamie. Tough bastard. And the old woman Doherty. Just for money. Let go of my wrist. You don't judge me. You're hurting me. When you look at me, what do you see? Let go. Hey. I'm normal like you. I am not like you. (laughs) We're closer than you think. I had an eye for a better life. And who's to say I was wrong? Me and all decent people. (laughs) I'll tell you about decent people. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they build a big wall around themselves. I listen to them in court. They don't know my life at all. They leave the court and claim in their carriage and it rattles away across the cobbles into the airy part of the city. They're known the mud and the struggle. You're hungry and need to eat. What did you do with the money? (laughs) Bought shoes and clothes and food and drank. Here, bought pigs. 
I got careless. With Jamie Wilson? <laughs> he was the one. <laughs> Professor Lisa Rosner, author of The Anatomy Murders, says Jamie Wilson was a familiar figure around Edinburgh University. He was well known in Edinburgh around the grass market. He lived with his mother and his sister, and they seemed to take good care of him. We don't know precisely what, really, if anything was wrong with him. He seems capable of getting around and uh, getting along with people and so forth, but he doesn't seem to have been able to look after himself or to work or to hold down a job. One of the medical students... In, in writing his reminiscences of his time in Edinburgh many years later, what he said was that Jamie would wait by the steps of the university, by the gates, and act you know, as a kind of assistant gatekeeper. He didn't actually do anything, but the students all knew him and would give him you know, a copper or two if he held out his hat. So he certainly had an idea of things in the city, of ways that he could earn some money. And that's as much as we know. Most of the rest of the stories, again, came after his death and after the trial. There are drawings of Jamie Wilson, but they are inadequate depictions of a flesh-and-blood boy. Sexless, blank, no character. Just this waif of a teenage boy who was murdered. He remains the victim, and that's all. But there is another picture of James Wilson. He emerges from the shadows, his eyes shaded by a big hat, and he looks out, trusting, with curiosity. He's a fine-looking young man. His nickname was Daft Jamie. Scots liked their nicknames. I grew up in a town where many people had one, whether they liked it or not. These names can imprison someone forever, hold them in a once-held position for the rest of their lives, when in fact they've moved on, blossomed and bloomed. James Wilson remains forever Daft Jamie, Stupid Jamie, Thick Jamie. His name is James Wilson, and he walks with a limp. I imagine him as real flesh and blood in his life on the street. I can tell you how I lost my shoes, but it'll cost you a penny. It's a good story. It's a sunshiny day. There's me and Bobby. You came my pal, Bobby O. You should tell the truth about your shoes. Oh. It's fine. They'll understand. Like to. It's dirty. It was a girl on the street and she cried out to him. Hello. Hello. Do you want a good time? I'm having a good time. I'm counting the chimney bugs. Oh, this would be a really good time. You're a big lad. Is there sweeties? I like rock. Uh, if you like. It won't cost you much. I've no money. That's a fine pair of shoes. You want my shoes? Tell you what. I'll give you a good time, and then you can see if you like it. And if you do, you can give me your shoes. Come on. I have a room. What are you doing? Now, let's just see what we have here. Oh, my. (laughs) Well? (laughs) 
And that's how I lost my shoes. It's the God's honest truth. I keep going back to her and she wants money every time. She calls me daft and I'm not daft. Every penny I get, I give to her because it is the best time. Tell them about the numbers. It's a trick I learnt. You can do things no one else can. It was bad. I got in trouble. It wasn't all bad. We'll show you. January the 4th, 1812. Wednesday. And we know it's true. I have a book with all the dates. It's cried an almond I, I learn it. I remember things. Bobby was born on the 4th of August, 1812, and his mother was born on the 7th of September, 1795. There's that man. Burke. Didn't like him. You look thirsty, lads. Let me buy you a drink. I don't like that stuff. Oh, well, that's good. You've got to keep a clear head for what I have in mind. I was hearing about your memory trick. You and me should work together. Hmm? <laughs> I didn't like him, but he's strong. Me and him were a team, he said. Some team. Gathering, gathering. Come in, see this boy. He places bets with folk, and I have to get the day and the date right like that. And he cleans up and gives me a penny. He's making more than a penny. I get mad with him. I hide. But he finds me and drags me up to the street and I call out the numbers. I stop it though. I don't know what to do it anymore. It's no clever. No the way you do it. What can I do? Gathering, gathering. See the amazing boy, Master James Wilson. It was a Saturday that year. Oh. <laughs> then you get it wrong. I mean it. Uh, it was a Thursday. Oh. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was. He's always right. Uh, no, my book says he's wrong. Give me uh. that. Is he? Where? There. It's the year before he said, and that's not what I asked. Uh, I got mixed up. Here, take your money. Mm. And you, come with me. <laughs> Don't you ever do that to me again. I wasn't thinking... Stop! You learn your lesson first. I have to make sure. You got him so angry when you ran away. He never catches me. I hid up at the park for weeks and I ate a pigeon. Didn't I like its feathers? Then I come back down, but I'm looking out in case he finds me again. I never see him till that day. I get a black eye. A man punches me for knocking into him on the cowgate. Sore. And I call for my mam. I can't find her. We know how James Wilson's life ends. Margaret Hare, the wife of the mass murderer William Hare, 
happens across James as he looks for his mother. It's Jamie, isn't it? You all right there? You look lost. Have you seen my mum? Aye, I saw her go up Portsburg a while back. Did, did you speak to her? I said I'd see her later. She's going to call in on her way back into town. You can come and wait with me. No, no, it's, it's all right. It's no trouble, Jamie. I'm here to help you. Come on. In 1828 Edinburgh, there are no CCTV cameras to capture that haunting moment. Margaret Hare takes his hand, and the boy, he is a boy, is led by the smiling female predator through the teeming crowds to his death. There is no one there to describe James Wilson's last moments in that room in Tanner's Close. A woman leads him to his death. For what? For money. They take a life and snuff it out. Mr Burke, it's you. Aye, it's me. And this is Mr Hare. Come here! You're hurting! Where's my man? It takes a while because he's a strong lad. He fights for his life. But then, silence. <sighs> A few weeks later, the woman who took Jamie Wilson by the hand and led him to his violent death steps into the witness box at the High Court in Edinburgh, where William Burke and his common-law wife, Helen MacDougall, are on trial for the murder of Maggie Doherty. Margaret Hare, you are a prisoner in the tollbooth of Edinburgh and you are implicated in a charge of the crime of murder for the murdering of a woman of the name of Doherty. One of the judges at the High Court, Lord Meadowbank, Margaret Hare is not alone in the witness box. Quite handily, she has a baby in her arms. It is my duty to tell you that for anything connected with that murder, you can never be brought to trial if you speak the truth. Margaret Lucky Hare is, like her husband, protected. Her evidence will not be about the boy she led to his death, but about the murder of Maggie Doherty. For the prosecution, Scotland's Lord Advocate, Sir William Ray. You are the wife of William Hare? Yes. Uh, do you remember last Halloween night? Yes. She's good at the yeses. And the baby stays quiet. Margaret Hare tells the court that Helen MacDougall, Burke's partner, came to her house in the afternoon or evening. She said there was a shot in the house. That was the word she used. Uh, did she say anything about her husband? Yes. She mentioned that he'd fetched the woman in out of some shop. Did she say expressly that they meant to make away with this woman? No. Did you understand it in the house that that was the person meant to be made away with? Answer the question, please. I did. Did she say anything about what was to be done with the woman that night? No, sir. She did not. You said your reason in understanding the word shot was you had heard that word expressed on former occasions with that meaning. The meaning of murdering a person or making away with them? Yes. 
Was there a quarrel between Burke and your husband that night? Yes. Was there a fight? Yes. I went in between them. I separated them. Uh, did they fall a fighting again? Yes. And the old woman cried out murder. She went out into the passage and came back again and fell backwards. She got a push and fell down upon the ground. I don't know who gave her the push. Now, what more did you see? I saw Burke lying on top of her. Did she make a noise? Did she make a noise? I couldn't say. Mrs McDougall and me flew out of the house and didn't stop in it. You remained out there sometime? Yes. Did you cry out? No, sir. Neither her nor me cried out. How long did you stay in the passage? I don't know. <laughs> a quarter of an hour? It could be that. Now, when you came back again, did you see the old woman? No. Seeing nothing of her... What did you suppose? That she had been murdered. I have seen tricks like that before. Indeed she has. Margaret Hare and Helen McDougall are, to me, fully paid up members of the highly efficient murder gang. There is no trial for the murder of Jamie Wilson. It's only the old woman in a box, Maggie Doherty, that William Burke and Helen McDougall stand accused of not the other 15 murders, because of a lack of evidence. But the luring, the pretense that Tanner's Close is a safe place owes much to the two women. Lisa Rosner. I think they had to know. I don't think the system worked without the women involved. I don't think these were stupid or, you know, always drunk people. I think that the victims were getting transients on the margins... But they were streetwise, and if it simply had been Burke or Burke and Hare inviting them to a drink, they never were going to go into a back room with a pair of men they'd never seen before. That the women were a necessary part of it, that their presence was a, you know, a kind of a guarantee that this was a respectable household. So I think they had to know. Of course, the person missing from this trial is the one and only Dr. Robert Knox, superstar showman, anatomist, who keeps on lecturing as the disquiet increases in Edinburgh. Gentlemen, look closely, pay attention, and I will begin. Nearly 200 years on, the question remains, did he know he was buying the bodies of murder victims from the killers themselves? Lisa Rosner. When I started my research, I wasn't sure. I thought it really would have been possible for him to convince himself that the bodies were coming perfectly legally, just in the same way that all his other bodies were coming from different parts of Britain, but just more local and thus fresher. But as I went through it, I'm afraid I found that harder and harder to believe. There were too many of them. There had never been such a bonanza of bodies before. He could have, at any time, asked more questions, tried to find the boarding house. And I think at that point, he decided, right, the best thing for me to do is to just say I know nothing. I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm deliberately not going to ask any questions. I'm not going to instruct my students to ask any questions. 
He may have even said, I may stop being around when Burke and Hare deliver the cadavers. I may leave that up to my students from now on. The historian Owen Dudley Edwards is also brutally clear. Robert Knox knew enough to know that he must not know. And that was all that he had to worry about. One of the difficulties is that people don't altogether like to think of the fact that prominent members of society may be so cold-blooded that they are perfectly prepared to profit by people dying. But of course, in all sorts of ways, if factory employees or household servants are treated badly enough, they'll die too, and others will be making a profit from them. So Knox, from that point of view, was just one of people who saw the poverty of the poor and saw no reason why anything needed to be done about it. Robert Knox decides he won't be deflected from his work, even when members of the Edinburgh establishment urge caution. Mr Donaldson, this trial is of no concern to me. Have the authorities spoken to you? They spoke to the doorman, but that's the size of it. I've heard you've had the feet cut off James Wilson's body and the hair of the girl Mary Patterson. I don't know who these people are. Listen, I buy subjects for dissection. I advance the cause of medical science. And there's an end to it. Far from it. Trouble is brewing for Knox in a frightened city where the names of the missing and known murdered are mingling with rumours and fact. All fuelled by articles in simple news sheets called broadsides. Have you seen this? It's dreadful. Read it, told me, Davy. It says there's loads more dead. It says that Dr Robert Knox is a man who bought the bodies. Dr Graham Hogg, a curator at the National Library of Scotland, which houses an expansive digital collection called The Word on the Street, defines these broadsides in modern-day terms. If you just wanted something on a single issue that was cheap, cheerful, and then could just be thrown away afterwards, you'd buy a broadside. And they were like the social media of the day. They were printed very quickly, and they were sold either directly from the printer or from hawkers in the streets you just grab a copy if you had a penny in your pocket. And sometimes they would be pasted on the walls of coffee houses or pubs. And sometimes they were pretty free and easy with the facts. It didn't matter so long as it read well, usually in quite simple, emotive language. And we'll never know who wrote them. All we know is that hundreds and hundreds of these broadsides were printed and most of them don't survive. They were just thrown away. Thrown away, but not before inflaming passions in a scared populace. We should hang them ourselves. We never get near them. We'll have knocks then. Inside the court this Christmas Eve, they're tiring. But the trial will continue right through until the morning of Christmas Day. Burke tells a court usher he is hungry. And a nod is given to the fact that he and McDougall can be fed while the trial goes on. An usher is dispatched down the high street to the nearest inn. There you go. Two bowls of soup and two oat cakes. 
I need paid. High court or no? Aye, aye. Is this for the judges? No. Burke and his missus. Wait. It's no seasoned. There we go now. The soup is delivered to Burke and Helen McDougall, who eat and drink in the dock of the High Court, surrounded by wigged and robed lawyers and with a rapt crowd looking on. It's easy to forget, with so many people wiped from the face of the earth, that it's just the one murder they are alleged to have carried out. Lack of evidence means the trial is concerned only with the killing of Maggie Doherty. The talk is of the old woman, as if that is what she always was before she became the dead woman, or the murdered woman, or the victim. Maggie Doherty had a life, and she was looking for her son. She didn't find him, but she found William Burke. The bell is above the door of a grocer's just up from the grass market. It's Halloween 1828. An old woman wearing a red striped dress walks into the shop. God bless you. I'm wondering if you can help me. But I want to join her, just before she enters the malevolent world of William Burke and William Hare. She's Irish, from Donegal, and we know she's come from Glasgow to look for her son, Michael. He's been working at the harvest, farm labouring, and recently lodging in Edinburgh. But he's gone from his lodgings by the time Maggie Doherty starts looking for him. This Halloween morning, she sets off walking into the cowgate in the heart of the old town. She'd have come through this busy thoroughfare, crowded with people setting up for the fair. Farmers, animals, shepherds mingle. In amongst them pickpockets. And murderers too. Maggie Doherty is poor, she is hungry, and she is looking for kindness. God bless you. I'm wondering if you can help me. It's just after nine in the morning. The young man behind the counter, William Noble, is kind but dismissive. No, there's nothing for you here. I'm sorry. I'll tell your fortune. Thank you now. I read palms. Good day to you. If you're sure. I am. At that moment, a smiling man steps from the shadows. It's William Burke. Wait a moment there. Here. There's something for you. Thank you, sir. God bless uh, you. Where are you from? From Donegal. Oh, sure and all, that's where I'm from. If you don't mind me asking, what's your name, ma'am? Oh, ma'am, he says. It's Doherty. It's never. <laughs> it's never Doherty. That's my name. Here. My hand, Mrs. Doherty. We're from the same people in the same place. We'll be related. It's good to meet you. And you, sir. Ah, no sirs here. I'm William. Here. Why don't you come to mind the wife will of porridge and... Uh, maybe you can tell my fortune. Oh, I should be on my way. I'm looking for my son, but I've missed him. Oh, you can stay at ours and take a dander out later and maybe they've turned up. Huh? 
Come on. You're very kind. God bless you. Maggie Doherty, accompanied by the kind and charming William Burke, walks out of the grocer's in the morning light and into the dark of Tanner's Close. She will never leave it alive. She might have claimed to tell fortunes, but she couldn't tell her own. In a day, she'll be dead, and her body stuffed in a box and sold to the doctors. Her murder will lead to the undoing of William Burke. In the next episode, as news of the killing circulates around Edinburgh, there's panic in the streets and gangs of angry citizens turn to violence. An Eye for a Killing is a BBC Scotland production written and dramatised by Colin MacDonald and presented by Jack Loudon. Featuring the voices of Gavin Mitchell, Andy Clark, Kyle Gardner, James Rutger, Lucian McAvoy, Maureen Carr, Simon Donaldson, Stuart Macquarie. The producer is Bruce Young. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.